Welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. My name is Alora Chestikoff, and I am from Firebird Summit. My partner in this podcast is Lawrence Henderson from Boss LLC. Every week we meet and discuss coaching topics relative to professional development, personal development, business, and entrepreneurship. Join us and see if there's anything else you'd like to add to the conversation. Well, hello, hello. This is Alora Chestikoff from Firebird Summit, and welcome to this week's episode of Grow or Die. I am here with my partner. Hey. What's going on, everybody? This is Lawrence Henderson again with Boss. Alrighty. Well, we are, I feel like we're moving into, you know, this weirdly divided point. You know, it's mid-June now, 2020, and we've got, I think, some people who have kind of started to figure out like what kind of normal is starting to look like for them. And I think other people are in other states of limbo, either, either um, a resistance kind of base or a wait and see. And so I feel like we're in this very strange place. And that kind of leads me to what I want to talk about today. You ready? Ready for it. Let's do it. So how, and I think this is, this is a huge thing that coaches deal with, um, and it's something that I admittedly actually really struggle to be as empathetic with as I, as I want to be. Um, so how do you help someone through a resistance to change? <laughs> you would ask me that. <laughs> well, so here's the thing, right? When I, when I look at the things that I'm, you know, really, I'm really preoccupied with right now. A lot of it's a lot of politics, um, and it's and then it's both at a macro level, like you know at a at, at you know we're watching the you know the protests continue around the country. We're watching your hometown had another horrible incident incidents of police violence on Friday night against a black man, um, and you know and the fact that that could happen at a point where there's heightened awareness around it, I think, is especially telling. Um, the way that there's been, you know, differing kind of perspectives in the White House, there's this kind of sense that they need to double down because they haven't really been racist enough yet. And I don't even want to know what that path would look like. But at the end of the day, what I kind of feel like I see everywhere I look is that, um, you know, so if we take Trump as an example, right? I feel like he is in very very much embodies a resistance to change, right? Whether it's whether it's a racial issue or a gender issue or a sexual orientation issue, he presents himself and, and dog whistles accordingly, uh, the idea that change is coming, it's too fast, it's really scary, and I'm gonna put the brakes, I'm gonna help you put the brakes on it, right? I'm gonna restore the patriarchy is really all we can call it. Um, and, and, and we're gonna stop all this crazy change that's just you know disrupting your life too much. And that's like at a, at a macro level. And I think there's a lot yeah. of, of scare tactics that come out of that. But I think at its core, that's, that's still what we see. I think we see it even on a personal level, right? You see people who are like wearing masks, right? Very resistant to the idea of wearing masks. And it's like, okay, well, I understand how at the beginning of the pandemic, we were getting a lot of mixed signals about how valuable masks were or weren't. There's been a lot of research since that says, okay, well, it might not prevent you from getting it, but it could prevent you from actually sharing it if you are asymptomatic. And, and I, I watch the way people react and, and they get so attached to the view they had at the beginning or the news they heard 
early on that they get very unwilling to update their perspective based on new input. And so all of these like big macro things, I feel like really kind of distill down to how for people that are, are not fans of change. Um, and I think this mm-hmm. is where I have trouble uh, being as empathetic. You know, I pick up and move to like a new state on a fairly regular basis, mm-hmm. right? Like that. And so for me, change is actually usually a really exciting adventure that I kind of can't help but take on. And if I don't have enough of it for too long, I'll go like burn something down just so I can, you know, force it yeah. in my life. So when, when I'm working with someone who has a strong resistance to change, um, I I really struggle with this. I struggle with how to get them through it. I struggle, um, and in my personal life, so my dad sometimes a good example, right? Like there'll be things where he might be resistant to change on it, and I just get impatient and frustrated with him, and I don't want to do that. But like it's something that is, is I, I see it around us, and I feel like it's getting more and more acute, right? I feel like that's so much of what, is at the heart of, of a lot of what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where to start in helping yeah. people who, I mean, obviously to some extent you have to have an awareness that you have a resistance to it to even start, even like try to do something with it. But, mm-hmm. but even from that point on, I'm yeah. I struggle with how to help with that. So I see it kind of, and, and, and I love that you, the empathy side of it comes up for you because that's, that's in this season of life, that's where all of it starts for me. And and how do you hold that space for somebody? And it really is around curiosity of, are you seeing this situation as an opportunity or an obstacle? And the associated emotions and feelings around that. And if you talk about policing, right? If you've been doing something so long, right? It's the whole cliche. If it's not broke, don't fix it. If we've been doing it this way for X amount of years. And again, it's all around are you seeing it as an opportunity or an obstacle? And in most cases, you're seeing the resistance because people feel like a way of life or a way of being is being challenged. And all we're saying, the people that are on the receiving end of the brutality are saying, can you hold the space to even say, yes, that I have a real lived experience here. Let's start the conversation. And I think when you're, we're asking people to be empathetic, it's almost like I'm asking you to be empathetic, but then I also need to model for you what empathy looks like. And so for, for me to have to be the deliverer of the message and the bearer of everybody's emotions during this process, it's unfair. And so we end up in a conversation where you have people who are can'ts or won'ts. And what we're running up against, we're identifying a lot of won'ts. A lot of people who said, I'm drawing a line in the sand You're not going to do anything whatsoever to change my mind about my position. And for us as coaches, when a client takes that hard of a line and say, I'm here, session stops. There's no, there's no conversation to be had. And if you talk about anything remotely towards progress and anything towards reform, everybody in the room has to be willing to concede in some concessions because if i have a conversation with you and the term and the phrase of black lives matters triggers you to want to have a response of all lives matter we got to start there we got to start where you believe my statement and my position there needs to be a tit for tat and there needs to be some type of one-upping exchange that 
that we need when, when change is the obstacle, right? Change is the thing that's the destination that we want to get to. But what is that change that we both see, right? Everybody has a picture of it, but we're differing on the route to get there. You know, we need it, but what road are we going to take? And it, and I, and I liken it to, you know, road trips with my wife. She would say, I'm a very poor traveler to new places because I'm a planner. I need to get exit strategies. I need routes. I need maps. I need maps for the maps. I need, I need outs. Right. And, and when I don't, I'm very, I'm very anxiety driven. Like, ah, ah, which way do we go? Which way do we go? And she's like, chill out, dude. Like, let's just enjoy the adventure. And I'm like, we need to have a plan. And, and I think in these cases, because this is new territory, not necessarily new for the people involved, but new for the people that have now been made to interact and engage. And so there's something this season as I begin to talk to people who I, I can smell anxiety on people now um, as they begin to have these conversations. I approach it with the three E's, right? Uh, engage, educate, and empower. Repeat. And the engage is, hey, let's just be, show up. Show up for the conversation. Both people, right? Don't, don't show up with your own agenda. Have some opinion. Have some, be ready to participate in dialogue, but be ready to be educated. Not just to say, boom, drop mic. I educated you. You were, you smarter because you was in the room with me. No, be able to, hey, have your opinion, have your thought, express it competently, but then be on the receiving end of now I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen because again, that's where awareness happens in the listening, right? If you ask somebody for feedback and all you do is talk, you really didn't want the feedback. You just wanted to hear yourself talk and say you gave somebody an opportunity to give you feedback, but you, you engage, you educate, but then the empowerment part happens when we say, okay, what are we going to do next? Right. And then everybody takes ownership and accountability of how they're going to move forward with this newfound knowledge, this newfound awareness. And I think for all of us, there has to be some collective responsibility moving forward in all of this. And I think what you're seeing is a lot of people in the sandbox, little kids that weren't normally told to play with each other. Now people are telling them to play with each other and it wasn't on their terms that they were told to play. And I think that's what a lot of the friction that we're seeing right now is play nice. Well, I was my way. And, and that's being challenged and threatened. So I think you said a couple of interesting things there that I want to circle back to. So the first one is, um, and I think you're, I agree with your examples, but I think the thing that, that strikes me is we're really far down this path, right? For, forget, forget the specifics of Black, of, of Black Lives Matter in particular, you know, we have, we have um, a, a set of racial tensions, we have a recognition of institutionalized racism, I have a dog puppy who's now wants to play because he just woke up from a nap, um, you know, but we also had, you know, the, you know, I was in DC for the Women's March after Trump's, you know, inauguration, and, and there were a lot of people there, and I think what I see is this is kind of just an escalation, right? It's not, it's part of a much broader systemic set of issues. Um, you know, I, I, as much as, as much as I might, you know, rail against Trump, the reality is I'm always very clear that he was a symptom. He didn't, he didn't create the situation that, that ultimately put him in office. He was merely, he merely gave voice to something that was already there. Um, 
you know, and we see it again around the globe. We see it, you know, Hungary is basically turned into an authoritarian regime as well. The Philippines are now on a rapid decline. I mean, we see it all over the world. Brazil is a mess where it didn't used to be a strong, fairly strong democracy. Um, I think the thing that I see in that, though, is, again, we all of these, like, strong men who emerge, right, they are hearkening back to this good old day mentality, um, and this this romanticized notion that once upon a time things were so much better, so we need to go back to that. We need to stop all this crazy change and all of this all of this adapting and updating, and you know, and we need to stop that. And and to your point about clients, totally get it. If client says, "Hey, nope, this is where I'm at, and tough shit, I'm staying here," then okay, well, guess what? Then then we probably don't have anything we can do. But I think that when we look at um, you know this broader question of like how how are we dealing with, you know, your crazy uncle who did vote for Trump or who thinks that, you know, that, that it would be okay to send the military out into the streets to quash protesters. And the truth is, you know, back in 1968, the Democrats, like there were, there were plenty of people who were willing to do it then. Kent State happened because we did it then. Like, it's not like we have it, we have a tradition of a part of um, this kind of law and order um, without the, just just the racist connotations right but the idea that there is there's a black and white way that things should function and they like that word should an awful lot and -hmm. anything that challenges the should um gets smacked down pretty hard and i think that's been the cause not the effect of where we've landed in so many ways but i think it starts at a very personal level right somebody who somebody who is born and raised and and born is born and dies 15 miles or 10 miles from in the same spot, never goes anywhere, never, never incorporates additional change into their lives. I think, you know, that's, that's a very, um, I mean, once upon a time, that's the way everybody lived because that's just the world we lived in. And, and I think there's this romanticized idea that we gave up too much when that model went away. And I think some of that, like, it, I think there's an idea that that's a security blanket or that that life, there were aspects of that kind of lifestyle that created a security blanket that people feel um, they want back or that is, is missing in our modern life. And that, you know, that if we could just go back to it, if we could just stop all this change, if, you know, and so I think, again, if we, if we set aside like the current political context and we come back to an individual person dealing yeah. with, their choice, right? Dealing with the stuff that comes up in their lives. And if we assume maybe it's not a client, right? Maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a parent, yeah. maybe, you know, a grandparent, whatever. Like, you know, I think we see this a lot with, um, especially with, with gay kids who are scared to come out to like their grandparents. Like mm-hmm. it's a big thing, right? Uh, what One thing that's interesting to me now is Gen Z especially tends to be a little bit less fearful of coming out to their parents, but they're also very afraid of coming out to their grandparents, right? Yeah. Whereas when, when we were younger, our peers who were gay were still afraid of coming out to their parents. For and sure. so we have, there's been kind of a little bit of a generational separation there, which is mm. interesting to see, but there's still that, that idea that we're changing too much too fast. And so if we yeah. come back to this like, as a set of personal decisions or personal practices that we can put into place that are, how do we, you know, yes, shit changes all the time. And some of it can be legitimately scary. And, and we don't know necessarily what the end game is going to look like, Mm -hmm. but how do I, as an individual help the people in my life 
work through the anxiety and the resistance that they have when it comes to stuff that's changing that they didn't necessarily want or request that's out of their control. But, you know, their only choice not to live with it is to go get an automatic weapon and start mowing people down. Like they're, they're, and and I I think to some extent that's part of the problem, right? There aren't, there aren't good actual choices to stop change. Like change is inevitable. And I think this is where I struggle with empathy because I look at it and as a total pragmatist, I'm like, what's going to happen? Like, exactly. Why are you fighting this high? Like, that seems well, I think, I think the optics of it, right. In, in how, um, just sensory overload this generation that's come up has been, but they're also the reason why there's still some anxiety of, you know, say a a child that wants to come out to their grandparents is the very simplicity of values and who in our sphere of influence were the standard bearers of that. And I think as if we really begin to break down what our true values are and how do we live and how do we engage and how do we build community and connection through that? Is it the Brene Brown way of connection of helping somebody feel seen, heard, and valued? And, and I think what's happened is we've done that-ish, but there's with contingencies of you still can only be this when you're with me. Or the parents that are shielding grandparents from children and saying, hey, you, you know how? You know how uh, grand grandma Lori is. You can't, can't certain things. Don't make sure you dye your hair back when when we're going over there, right? Um, take those earrings out, um, especially the one in your tongue, right? And I think what's happening now is we need to get really clear and and get really assertive in the way that we communicate and what's true for us. And it's like a muscle, right? If, if you don't run for quite some time, you can't walk outside your door and say, I'm going to go run a marathon. You can, but um, make sure a paramedic is close. Um, ambulance is close. IVs are closed for hydration and other things because it's going to be ugly. But we need to work the muscle of connection, of engagement, of conversation. And one thing that I'm finding, I had two, two amazing conversations yesterday, one with uh a white woman, um, kind of middle age, and then another with a white male, middle age, and they said, "Hey, we want to begin to have these conversations because we're being engaged by our families, by our friends, our nieces, our nephews, our brothers, sisters, and we just want to partner in having dialogue." And that was it. That was the only expectation. Like, I know there are some things that I have operated in because of privilege. We had our conversation about privilege, and some things. I blatantly closed my eyes to now that I'm aware that I really, I didn't engage because I didn't, it didn't affect me. So I was like, eh, I, didn't, I don't need to go there. But now that the world, this, this idea that we are a global community is really coming on people to where now before we could just be United States, we could put up a wall verbally. It was like directly, indirectly, but because access to the world wasn't as prevalent as it is today. And I think now as a global community, nothing's off the table now where you have Belgium and France and all these other countries, they're now a part of this global movement where, and I believe again, the ones who want to go back, I think that's really what they, they want to go back to the optics of let's do it under the cover in the guise of in which we were raised in. We don't want to be on the front page 
news of the internet. Like I don't want Google this to be the main page. And, but I think, and, or I don't want to be trending on Twitter. Like, but that's the reality of today. And I think they're fighting against this next normal. This new reality, is it's not going anywhere. So to think about us as a global community would mean that we now need to have global conversations around what values mean to us. And if we say we're the land of the free because of the brave, what value is leading there? Is it really we have respect for our men and women in uniform? And are we taking on as a nation those values of loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage? Like if that's what we're gonna do from the army side of the house, then what does that look like? Is it the old school duty on our country, right? And I think that's where a lot of those old guys, that's all that's in their head. Duty on our country, do your job, like honor, honor your parents, and you better not disrespect this country in any way, shape or form. And that's why most of the military services got rid of that mess. That's why you got generals today, like who cares about the name of the daggone base? We should never name them after Confederate generals anyway, they lost. We would never go into battle and name something Fallujah. Like we we wouldn't do it. Like no, we're not going to do that. And so, for for people to again dig their ditch and dig their grave and stand on that hill of this is what I'm going to, this is what I'm going to say is right. It, it doesn't make any sense. It's it defies all logic as it pertains to change. Like you said, just like we say change is hard and people fight change, change is inevitable. It's I have more gray hairs in my face every time I shave. It's a fact. Like I just, I, and it grows back. I'm like, where'd that one come from? And, but if we know it's going to happen, we should be better at it. You would think by now, but people try to hold on to what they believe is normal for them and makes them feel good about their existence. And I think that's really what we're coming in to fight with. We're a global community and we got to figure out how to connect. Well, and I think, you know, to that point, I think COVID has has highlighted the realities of that, right? So to me, this is, and again, this is another example that I struggle to be empathetic with, right? Where you have, when, during, during the election, when Trump went to West Virginia and said, we're going to bring coal mining back, we're going to bring your coal mining jobs back. Like, to me, that's one of those just maddening, like, ridiculous statements, because it's like, okay, First of all, there's still coal mining going on. It's just all automated now. So, so coal mining hasn't gone away, but your jobs have, and they aren't coming back. So we have to find another way for you to make a living. Like that is not going to return in the way that it used to. Just like, you know, manufacturing jobs in the Midwest that were the cause of the rise of the middle class in the first place. Those jobs are all overseas now. But the flip side of that is, you know, now saying, oh, well, we're going to, we're, we're going to put the brakes on globalism. Are you kidding me? Like, seriously, like th that's, to me, that's one of those just utterly preposterous things to say because the, it, it took us 40 years of, of work to get a global, a truly global economy and the economics aren't in your favor to roll it back. Like it doesn't, like that's not how anything works, but this idea that that's somehow going to solve things, I think is where I get, um, I really struggle with people who kind of take that worldview um, and I struggle to be patient and I struggle to be empathetic with, you know, how, how they are coming to terms with, you know, the fact that there's, there's a reality that they probably didn't sign up for. But I got to say, you are a black man who lives in the South. I don't see you having signed up for having to fear for police, you know, 
police violence on a daily basis either. So again, I think there's that privilege component in that there's a, um, an idea that certain demographics at some point or t in time had some control or at least the illusion of control that they were getting to influence how things unfolded and they, they feel like they might have lost some of that. But the truth is, change is still coming and, and being resistant to it doesn't stop it. And so when I think about, you know, to your point about, you know, the empathy and the education and, and you know, and engaging, I like, I like the engaging piece especially because I think getting somebody to actually tell you and articulate what it is that they're, that is causing them to fear change or causing them to, to find the idea of change upsetting, um, I think is, is the only thing I've seen work. Um, I still am not always as great about being empathetic as, as I would like to, to show up as, but I think that's, that's to some extent, the only thing that's the only starting point I know of, right? Is, is so, so help me understand what it is about returning to, you know, 1956. That sounds appealing to you. What is it, you know? And again, see, this is my part of my problem, right? Because I was also a history major. And as a like historians have a saying, the only thing that smells better with age is history. Because we just, we whitewash all of, you know, I, I my, my, my ex-husband was a total germaphobe, but he had this like fixation for like the Victorian era. And I'm like, okay, you realize they didn't take showers. Like, it, like your germaphobia would have gone berserk in the Victorian era, right? They didn't wash their clothes. Nobody took baths. Like definitely nobody brushed their teeth. Like, you know, the, there was no garbage. No, there was no garbage service in big cities. You walked out the door and you stepped into whatever, like, like, I mean, that was some nasty stuff. Like really? But he had this very romanticized notion of that point in time. And, and that's a very common thing we see with history, right? It's the good yeah. old days. You know? And, and I don't, you know, and again, like for me, I, it's hard to keep a straight face when I talk about it because like, it just sounds funny when you actually start breaking it down. Yeah. Truth is, it's, it's a very rose colored glasses way of looking at things. And I think it's, it's clinging to those kinds of, of romanticized ideals. That yeah. It is part of that, that kind of blanket of resistance that people can sometimes wrap themselves in. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's a huge point, right? Because if you look through those rose-colored glasses, then everything will seem like it's not out of place until there's a crack in those glasses and stuff starts to seep in. And I think what you're seeing now is that reality being, being changed for a lot of people. And it's like, well, wait till I retire. Then y'all can do whatever y'all want. Wait till, wait till I'm fully out the way and then you can do whatever you want. But while I'm here, we're not going to change. And I think, I think Trump as a person, he understands it's like that scene from 300 or not 300 from gladiator where they're, they're talking about when he's doing the games, like he's like, if I could control the mob, I can control everything. And I think Trump, that silent majority mob, he understands them because he is them. And as long as he can appeal to everybody and he's saying, I'm not going to change the color of your glasses. Because I know I've been there. I hate when somebody messes with my glasses. I hate when they mess with my reality. And I hate when people try to make their lives better. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sign you all up for another four years of you maintaining your existence and not having to deal with any of this changing stuff. 
and I think what's what's happening, and that's again, it's why you can have the the two factions of the Republicans and Democrats, is because everybody's like, again, are you really for the people? Are you really for us living this life together, or are you for us looking through the reality and the lens in which you want to tell us the color of the glasses are? And I, and far as is having a conversation around change, is it? I really it when everybody comes to the table, what's the one thing you're willing to do differently? And I think everybody in this moment, everybody has to be accountable to something, right? Even if you call it out and say, I'm not changing, people need to know who you are. Again, we can identify the flat out racist. I don't, I don't need you to tell me you're racist and you're not changing. I'm talking about the people who are, you're trying to straddle the fence and not rock the boat. Guess what? You're still rocking the boat and the boat is off because people are picking sides. We need you to go to the side that your values or whatever is leading your life is pulling you. Just go to that side. And I think that's the part of it. There's a lot of people trying to ride in the middle and don't realize that they're still rocking the boat. The boat is off. And so for us, people like us that like, look, right is right because it's right. And being a human being, there's no wrong time to be human. <laughs> And to treat people like humans, like there's, there's never a bad time to do that. And I think that is what's the existence of people being called out, that there have been systems in place. Like, and, and somebody, my brother texted me something yesterday. He said, he was having a conversation with somebody and we talk about this, the word of reconciliation. He said, something can only be reconciled that was in existence at some point. He said, what are we reconciling from a racial standpoint in the United States? He said, black people were never written into the history of this country. He said, it wasn't until 1964 when we tried to do the Civil Rights Act, which all of that was around labor laws and some other stuff. But for us to have a humanity conversation, he said, we were never written back into the conversation. We were always livestock and property. And so it was, and, but the mindset of, and what, like you said, to the point of which we're having this conversation is, if you don't value me as a human being, how can you value anything that comes out of my mouth as a part of the conversation? And I, and I think that for a lot of us in the community, it's like, man, I've, I've got all this education and I've worked so hard to feel like I have something to say, but man, am I really fighting against that? And again, that's heavy to think about personally, but I think having advocates and allies as we have these conversations, like, and I know you're a huge advocate of people being treated fairly, flat out and, and non-negotiable for you. And so how do we multiply you and move people towards the direction of change towards you and help them understand? We don't want you there today. We just want you to actually start taking steps in progress modes, not in total perfection modes. And I think that's, that's the part, we just need people to begin to take steps in the right direction. So you actually raised something there that, that, so two things come to mind with that, right? So, you know, I, I, I agree with everything you said, but I still see a lot of cases where, so if somebody's personal, you know, values include things like tradition, um, then like, I feel like that's a really um, clear case for them to use their values to dig in, right? And and so like, so can I, I say something on that real quick? Because oh, so to your point, weaponizing values 
and using them as a reason to stay put. And it, it, the concept of the value in your head versus the value that you act out. And I think the violation happens when you make them describe how they live. And, it, and that's where they, you see like, okay, you treated Alora that way. And the awareness of, but did you recognize how you treated Lawrence? Like they, they both asked you for the same thing, but your interactions with Alora, how you were kind, you were sweet, you use, you use terms of endearment. But with Lawrence, it was very matter of fact. It was very pointed. It was very rigid. It was very, why, why was the response that way? And how is that the same value of service? Right. And I think that's the part for me where I get, I have fun calling people out on which value is, is that. And, and again, it's the difference between the one that's in your head that you believe you're doing because you're looking through rose colored glasses, like, all right, check that box. I'm done. Versus did I do it to the level in which I say I live my life through my values? And I think that's the part of it as an organizational culture guy in the organizational leadership guys that I've been calling folks out left and right. The idea that you're trying to use your values. Um, now you're in a case where a person was trying to reprimand somebody or use the values as an argument of why they made a decision the way they made a decision. And it was like, oh, like, how'd you process that? Like, I, like now I'm super curious because I'm like, man, you are masterful and you're dangerous. Like you are dangerous if you could figure out the word of respect and you can mutilate it to change to where it serves you to be wrong, like okay, so to be now, okay, so conniving. You're, ra you're raising a whole other. Yeah, there's a whole other, there's a whole other 50 minutes. Well, no, because you just, you just. <laughs> actually moved right into the other part that I was I was thinking of but you just said set, set it up perfectly so thank you um which is you know you are a preacher's kid and I'm an atheist and one of the reasons that I have kind of dug in to my atheism is watching Christianity be weaponized in ways that are are so horrifying to me that I can't it, I struggle to get to the core messages, which in so many ways I actually agree with um, because of the way that it plays out in, or in the way it has played out in my lifetime domestically. I, and so as a preacher's kid, I am dying to hear, and as somebody, a person of faith, I, I would love yeah. to hear your perspective on this because this one is yeah. a huge, huge struggle for me. Yeah. So, so I like it to the, uh... We always say, I always say to people, um, again, like values, which Jesus are you preaching? The one in your head that helps you get away with stuff because you say he's the savior or the one in the Bible that actually shows you how to actually operate and walk in love. And the story that I love from the Bible, like immensely where I say it was the, it's the story of today is the, when he was the woman at the well the Samaritan woman at the well, and he engaged her in the middle of the day. And anybody in Hebrew Jewish culture, if you weren't of heritage, you had certain times of the day that you'd go visit the well. Well, Jesus went to the well and he started speaking to this woman and said, hey, give me, give me water to drink. And she's like, she led with her race. She led with the disconnect that he shouldn't be talking to her. And he like kept talking to her like, whatever. Um, I, I have 
what you need to live a fruitful life moving forward. And he just kept talking to her and he seen her, he heard her, he valued her. And the disconnect is that Christianity, Christianity as a religious cult has been weaponized that they preach condemnation, but they don't preach salvation in the realm of love and true love is the reason why he had to die is because so we could all have the opportunity to know him as the savior and regardless of lifestyle he knew future past present doesn't matter my blood perfect lamb done love on each other and me up to this point in my life as a 40 year old black man preacher kid pentecostals assemblies of the world it was hellfire and damnation all of my youth. And that's why a lot of my peers have walked away from the faith is because I'm not going to come and sit in church for 40 minutes and you preach for 35 minutes, hellfire, damnation, and the last five minutes you preach salvation. By that point, I don't believe it's true. And, and in a lot of cases, that's what's happened in the United States is we, we condemned people into, it's a, somebody called it, it's a servant followership instead of servant leadership. And so you beat people into submission to follow something that is not truth. And if we do what Jesus did, this is not a conversation. He loved on everybody. You can't tell me only Jewish people followed him around. His message was to, to Gentile, to Greek, to Jew, to everybody. And the message was love your neighbor as yourself. And that was the message, that period. The, the great commission is be the salt and light in the earth. And so we understand light attracts light, energy attracts energy. And, and so when we operate from that premise and do what Jesus did, that now takes judgment off the table because he's, he's, he already did that. He already took care of that. So I get to see Alora. I get to see Alora. I get to make room in my heart to hear Alora. I get to make room in my life to value all of Alora, regardless of what's going on in your life. And for me, the, the most freeing thing that ever happened was the moment where you get still and you meditate and just to hear love. I am love. And in every conversation, you and, and evangelicals, that's, that's why I want to get in a room with one of them. And I want to have this conversation because the world needs the Jesus love, the one that says, I love you equally. There's no respecter of persons. There's no sin greater than the other. So stop it. Stop it. All of it was covered. There's no, there's no rating system on sin. There's no rating system on who's, what blood covers more than something else. And I think when we talk about change, it's the evolution and self-actualization of an understanding that the way that we feel we live a fulfilled life is how often we create opportunities to build authentic, strong connections, which I, which is one of the reasons why I love how, like the craziness of how we circled back and we began having these podcasts. It was just like, it was so authentic and it was from a, such a loving place that we're going to have some banter. And guess what? I don't even expect us to be on the same page most of the time, but guess what? It's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. But we respect each other. And that respect is from a very caring, authentic, and loving place because 
I don't ever in an engagement want you to feel like I ever didn't see you, hear you, or value anything that was coming out of your face. And that's how, that's how we change the world is that we approach every single conversation this way. So, so it still leaves me with, so I mean, the thing is, is like, <laughs> I have, I have, so I have plenty of friends who, yeah. who are, you know, who, who ha- to some degree or another do identify as Christians. They do practice um, and who take that perspective. I think my, my challenge is I still struggle with how, how toxic, huge, vocal, politically powerful groups have have made it um and how to yeah for me there i have a huge reconciliation problem there and i really struggle to um you know and i and i always appreciate my friends who you know can can be uh maybe more live and let live about you know about that and and acknowledge other people's experience um but it's such a it's such a hard one and i think you know it comes back to sort of what i was saying about that you know that hearkening for days past. It's like this idea. And again, I think as, you know, a history buff, again, my, my frustration with people rebranding history into something that's convenient for their current worldview is a huge frustration for me. Um, but I think that, that that's kind of what I see a lot. And when I, you know, I deal with people, grandparents, great example, right? My grandmother in particular, she and I have, uh, have, hit a point where we know which topics just are not not on the table and and religion is the real one i mean this is it and and it's not something that we i think either one of us have any hope of ever actually kind of coming to consensus about but we've had a you know all right everybody does her own thing kind of you know this level of peace with it but it's still a very you know but but there is a there are underlying reasons that we aren't in agreement about a lot of things on this front. And I don't, um, I don't necessarily know how to, how to separate out what that weaponization of religion has become from where it started. And I, I hear your point, totally get it. But, but again, right. You know, evangelicals gave put Trump, I mean, that, that's his core base right there. 100%. Like, and I, I think where a lot of it comes from is it was a lifestyle, right? It was, it was a lifestyle that if we could get everybody sheeply to head in one direction and put it under the banner of the cross, uh, then somehow on the, <laughs> the scale of deity, we, we were closer to to the to heaven and i literally halloween was (laughs) absolutely hilarious um i was we were told not to celebrate it but we would watch movies like the rapture like (laughs) you're gonna scare me into heaven um like and that and that and i laugh at it today because it was it was consistent across childhood and across regardless we go to a fringe church we go to anybody's church it was kind of they they read from the same script and it was like if i could keep you bound to that again i go back to servant followership versus servant leadership which says i need to model 
what I want to see multiplied around me and become a multiplier of the right thing versus have sheep. And that's, I think that's why so many people have left the church and left ministry is because the, they looked at the man and woman of God, that pastor as infallible. And when something happens or something comes out, if you don't treat them with the love and treat them in accordance with salvation and the blood of Jesus Christ, then it can ruin you because you've now put that person on a pedestal. And I think the reason why those organizations got so powerful is because the following was powerful. If you, um, there's a book divided by faith um, that talks about the evangelical movement. And again, I've been, I'm PK's kid. I didn't even know evangelical was a designation of Christianity. But that's but it accounts for almost 33 percent of United States of America, where 90 percent of it is white. And so I didn't even know that. Like, I'm like, oh, and uh, Lecrae, a rapper, and even Martin Luther King said the most segregated time in America is at 11 o'clock on a Sunday. And it, it and that weaponizing of, hey, y'all got y'all's churches. Stay in your place. We got our churches. We going to stay in our place. But understanding there was a base of power that was being generated and cultivated and groomed to where it built these empires on the back of the cross. And again, you talk about the Templars, you talk about the Crusades, you talk about all of that stuff that was built under the banner of this is what Christ can, no, you, you weaponized it. You, you totally corrupted what it was all about and what it stood for. And, and I think that was the part of it that, again, you're going to have, people are going to have to atone for that. Like there's going to be an atonement that happens. And those people, again, I believe we're going to be dealt with accordingly. And, but for us, I can't, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to just continue to pray for you. But if you come my way, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm a work in progress. I will throat chop you. If you use that, if you, if you come at me on that, I will quote some scripture on you. I will pray for you. I will pray for that your injuries heal and bones set back the right way. Um, <laughs> let me stop. I was stop. I was stop. <laughs> no, but as a Christian, you get to say that. If an atheist said that, we'd be in so much trouble. No, you wouldn't. Uh, no, uh, you, uh. I got your back. I got your back. You say it. Just say it. I'm like, yo, and I'll follow through with the left jab, and I'll come over top with the, with the atomic elbow. Like, and then again, then we'll pray together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So, so we started off with, you know, resistance to change and now we've ended up with, you know, body slamming evangelicals, which I, you know, to be fair, it's never really a, <laughs> a big stretch from, from my perspective, but probably not where you thought we were going to end up in this conversation. I love it. I love where we ended up. Uh, me too. So, well, it's okay. So I think if we're going to tie, if we're going to try to tie bow on this, right. Yeah. And what, I don't, I don't think it matters whether it's religion or whether it's, you know, politics or whether it's, you know, just being willing to, you know, move out of the neighborhood you've lived in for 15 years. Right. I think when, when it comes to change and it comes to helping people get over their fear of change, I think some of the things we've discussed before, obviously today, you know, talking about, you know, getting them to articulate what it is that, that they are afraid is going to happen. But I think, you know, one of the things we've discussed before that I think is always super, super useful. And we went, we had this in our coaching training too, was, you know, name, name your absolute worst case scenario, like the worst, the absolute worst. Um, and I think that's, that's, 
maybe another reason that I struggle to be as empathetic with people who resist change as much as possible because I am very, very, very aware of the reality that once you actually articulate the worst thing that can happen, you realize usually almost always two things. One, it's not actually as bad as I'm thinking it was. Like it was like a boogeyman in my head, but once I actually put it into words, it's not actually that terrifying. And two, even if it happens, I'll still get through it. Um, and I think that's that's probably um, that's probably applicable here too. I think the the real the real challenge is that you know we it's easy I think to get distracted, right? To so your point about evangelicals, I think it's just like Trump and his supporters. Um, I think it's so. I think we hide in crowds, right? I think that's in the echo chamber problem that we know we have. Um, I think, but I think we we surround ourselves with people who are willing to have the same set of resistance to us, and then we travel in packs and we act like pack animals, and that's um, I think where we get legitimately dangerous behavior um, and in systemic and institutionalized in ways that are harder to combat over time. Which comes back to sort of where where I kind of started with this, which is you know individual personal experiences like how do you how how is somebody who you know thinks that the idea of moving is a travesty because they're so resistant to change like their whole worldview is so adverse to the idea of change and even moving from you know one house to another is you know anathema and they wouldn't ever consider doing it if they weren't forced to um and so like that's to me that's that's the seed that really sprouts into this much bigger tree with very complicated branches yeah, I, I love it. I love it. I love where we ended up today. No, I love it. We grow branches. We need to grow. <laughs> you need to prune. You need to trim. You need to just get them, get them out. Because we, if we don't grow, we, we stop evolving. So there we, we need go. to grow. grow. Grow or die, man. Grow or die. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Uh, all righty, my friend. In that case, then we will wrap for the week. Thank you, as uh, always. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Have a wonderful week. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me and Lawrence in this week's episode of Grow or Die. Join us next week when we'll take on our next topic. In the meantime, have a fantastic week.